0: Every week, journalists at the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for the people of North Central Florida and beyond.
1: I think that Queen Chiku Ngozi's work is beautiful, it's lively, and it reminds us that these people were alive once. They deserve to be remembered and memorialized.
2: Their message is a very popular one. It's one that most people in Gainesville can get around. Most people at UF can get around.
3: The effects of this program through things like test scores, classroom performance, not only in the music classes, but in other classes like math, science, English, et cetera.
0: This is The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Melissa Fato. I'll take you through the strongest reporting coming out of our newsroom and a discussion with the journalists who write these stories. Let's get into the stories from this week. Over the summer, Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill into law that created a 10-person task force to discover abandoned African-American cemeteries in Florida, as well as make recommendations to maintain them. The legislation outlined that these cemeteries were established without proper documentation or maintenance regulation because of racial discrimination. Experts believe there are around 40 historically black cemeteries in Alachua County alone. Producer Malia Leiden speaks with WFT's Alessandra Nzena about how a Gainesville artist is shining a light on these cemeteries in the area.
1: I found Dr. Kunchiku Ngozi through a story I was working on for The Alligator about a Black History Month event hosted by the Bailey Learning and Arts Collective. And she was a artist that was going to be presenting her work there. And she was telling me about her, you know, the project that she was presenting at that Black History Month event. And it was amazing. It it immediately caught my eye and piqued my interest. So I definitely thought that it spoke to something bigger at play, which, you know, a lot of great art does. So I really wanted to feature her and I wanted to feature these cemeteries.
4: And can you take me through your reporting process and some of the information that you learned?
1: For that story, actually, about the Black History Month event, I had spoken to a number of artists each for about maybe 10, 15 minutes each. But with Dr. Ngozi, I ended up speaking with her for about 30 minutes to 45 minutes, and I would go on to speak with her at length. Uh, many, many more times, probably maybe four more times that I would go on to speak with her and learn more about her projects and meet her and interview her and things like that. So that was really interesting. And through that, I was introduced to historians, Nigel Rudolph and Karen Kirkman, who have been especially interested in these African-American cemeteries in Alachua County. And so I reached out to them. We sort of Traded information and things like that about you know what I was working on and what they had been working on in terms of the cemeteries and they are so knowledgeable their information was great and then through that I reached back out to Terry Bailey who is a big fan of Dr. Ngozi and I realized that Bailey also had family members that were buried at one of the cemeteries I had visited because I visited many of these cemeteries throughout reporting on them. I visited at least five, I believe. She had relatives at one of the worse off cemeteries that I saw, and it was really engaging to speak with her about that. And I mean, I can't imagine if I had a family member and you go to visit them and you see their gravesite is not in the, you know, in the way that you would want it to be to honor their memory and things like that. So I found the story very intriguing and very sad at times, but it all has a silver lining whereas like somebody is trying to memorialize them.
4: And can you tell me a little bit more about Ngozi's project and what her experiences have been like working on it?
1: Dr. Ngozi has visited about I believe, more than 30 of these cemeteries, and some of them are very hard to get to. She described to me driving miles through dirt roads and trekking through waist-high grasses to get to these headstones and get to these cemeteries. And so she would find these cemeteries through research or word of mouth, and she would take pictures of them, dozens of pictures. After that, she would go home she would um sort of place them together in a panorama type of view and then after that she would separately from that those digital photos she would paint physically characters that are dressed in ways that represent how these people would have dressed when they were alive so she did that and then after painting that she would digitize those characters And it's very complicated process because you have to make sure that the pixels line up with the with the photo so it looks like they actually belong there and not that you just kind of, you know, sloppily paste them on and so she would make sure all the pixels are correct and then she would place those digitally over her photos. And this whole process, combing through the pictures, because if anybody who takes pictures or takes photographs professionally or otherwise knows that sometimes you just take way too many, the more than you need, so it takes a long time to sort of you know pick out the ones that are the best and to show the entire cemetery or as she says, the entire community and sort of get a sense of who these people were when they were alive, and these characters are vibrantly painted I mean you can see her talent and yeah, they're never sad. They're never, you know, moping around. Ironically, they're just living their lives. Going back to the
4: general concept of abandoned African-American cemeteries, how have people in Alachua County in the state of Florida been trying to protect these cemeteries?
1: In 2021, Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill that established a 10-person task force to set up recommendations and find these, these cemeteries. As of January 1st, they have a list of recommendations that are to sort of better maintain these cemeteries, better find them, better use resources to make sure that they don't you know, fall victim to the Florida jungle as Nigel Rudolph would say. So that's been in the works. I know that here in Gainesville at least, they recently, as of, I believe, last year, hired a preservation expert of some kind in the, in the government. I've spoken to her for previous stories, and she is a serious woman about preservation, uh, cultural preservation, historical preservation, things like that. So as far as Florida goes, there are laws and legislation in place to find these cemeteries and maintain them. It's just a matter of actually getting out there and, and finding them and taking care of them.
4: And what's something you learned that
1: surprised you or stood out to you? There are cemeteries everywhere. That really surprised me. Doing the research for this and finding that the Zion Cemetery in Tampa, which had a whole apartment complex built over it, I was not aware of that story until researching this. It just surprised me that the effects of institutionalized discrimination and racism don't even stop for those that are dead. The consequences of institutionalized racism and Jim Crow, not even the dead can escape that. And that it was really jarring to realize that these places are not, we're never really given a proper chance to be protected and be a place where ancestors can go for generations and visit their relatives and things like that. The lack of documentation really blew my mind. What would you say
4: is the significance or biggest takeaway people should have from your story? I
1: think for a lot of us, especially people my age, I'm 21, and death isn't really on the mind that much. And I don't say I think about cemeteries a whole lot. And I I think that racism within cemeteries is something that completely didn't cross my mind whatsoever. And I think it's that the effects of Jim Crow and the effects of institutionalized racism follow the living and the dead and the consequences are generational. And so much so that we're still dealing with the effects of Jim Crow, which was quite a while ago. And I think that speaks volumes. But beyond the, the racism, I think that Queen Chiku Ngozi's work is beautiful. It's lively. And it reminds us that these people were alive once. They had lives, they had family, and they deserve to be remembered and memorialized. Is there anything else you'd like to add or feel people should know about? I feel that all over the South, we're going to be finding more cemeteries that were you know, either not documented and therefore built upon or and things like that. I think we're gonna be finding cemeteries.
0: That was producer Malia Leiden speaking with WUFT's Alessandra Inzena about a Gainesville artist who is bringing attention to abandoned African-American cemeteries. You're listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. We'll be right back.
3: Tell Me About It is about the very people who touch the heart of North Central Florida. I'm your host, Sue Wagner, and each week we talk to those who work to elevate the quality of life in our area. That's Tell Me About It, Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. here on WUFT.
0: Welcome back to The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Melissa Fato. Let's move on to our next story. Last week chants to the likes of Top 5 School, Top 5 Pay and Gator Pay Bites were heard across University Avenue as community members protested for increased wages for UF's graduate assistants. After multiple delayed attempts at bargaining, graduate assistants are hoping the university administration will agree to another bargaining session. Salary negotiations normally open with UF at the beginning of each fall semester, but the university has since delayed a deal twice, each for 90 days. UF didn't agree to a wage increase by March 30th and informed GAU Thursday that it would need another three months to work out the numbers. Now, graduate assistants are expressing their frustration with this back and forth. Producer Ariana Aspidu spoke with Gregoria Ruiz-Perez about the movement for higher wages at UF.
5: So last week, about 70 protesters gathered to support UF's graduate assistants asking for wage increases. You were at their event, and can you tell me a little bit about what it was like? Just paint me a picture of what the scene was.
2: Uh, It was a very hot day. It was... A very typical Florida evening, very humid. Uh, this didn't really stop anybody there, though. There was a lot of energy coming from everybody. Uh, when they were, you know, chanting, they were really getting into it. They didn't let up for the two hours that they were marching there. Uh, they stood by the road, hoping for people to honk at them, to support them. They really got a lot lot of support from the people who were passing by. It was really like telling that their message is a very popular one. It's one that most people in Gainesville can get around. Most people at UF can get around. So it it was all around really positive energy, hoping for the better treatment of graduate assistants.
5: So you are reported on the story for the Alligator. What can you tell me about the events leading up to the protest? Like, how did we get here?
2: The Graduate Assistance United Organization at the University of Florida. Uh, every fall, they reopen negotiations with the university uh, to bargain a better price for their stipend sometimes, or um, sometimes nothing changes and, you know, sometimes things wildly change. And this past renegotiation, which opened up in fall of 2021, the graduates assistance United was ready to be paid more. Um, They at first were asking for, I believe, $38,000 and then they were asked, if they could have $34,000, which would be a match of the amount that gets paid at the University of Michigan, you know, the University of Michigan being a top three university is very comparable to the University of Florida, that is a top five university. Here at the University of Florida, the minimum stipend for graduate assistance is $21,333, uh, so there, there's a very big difference between a top three and a top five university. You know, even the University of Georgia, who is, I believe, 16th in the rankings for public universities, uh, so 11 spots below the University of Florida, they pay their graduate assistants a minimum of 29000
5: And onto the university side, what has UF said about this, if anything?
2: I'm not exactly share myself as to what the most recent news about what uf has said so all i know is that in the fall of 2021 these renegotiations began then uf asked for a three-month extension in december and uh, now that we reached march 30th that was the you know end of that extension of those 90 days Uh, They asked for a second extension, which should last, of course, another 90 days. And that kind of took a while for them to communicate. But when I was speaking to some of the graduate assistants, they were talking about the fact that the university, you know, was hard to reach after a specific meeting that I mentioned in the article about 100 students, 100 graduate assistants or students showed up to you know, the bargaining session at the end of February with UF, they were seeming like they were going to have a deal, or at least the Graduate Assistants United thought that they would work towards it throughout the month of March. But during the month, that is when they started reaching back out to the University of Florida, sending them emails to make sure that there was still a deal to be made by March 30th. So the Graduate Assistants started emailing the university March 17th and didn't get a response until March 31st or March 30th asking for a renewed extension, which the Graduate Students United did give the University of Florida.
5: And with that, along with in your story, we learned that the current wage rate for graduate assistance is below what's considered a livable wage. With those two things, sort of happening at the same time. Can you tell me what some of the attendees at the event were saying? I can imagine a lot of frustration, but how did they feel?
2: At the protest, I met a 24-year-old biology graduate assistant. Uh, Her name was Ashley. She gets paid the minimum of $21,333. And uh, she's just had a rough time of finding a nice place to live in Gainesville
5: lastly, what's on the horizon for this issue? As you follow the story, what are you looking out for in the near future?
2: When I look to the issue and how it's going to develop in the future, I feel as if the university can't stall for very much longer, like a lot of the graduate assistants said. A lot of the graduate assistants believe that uh, the university is tempting stalling techniques so that the movement loses steam and so that the students who are a part of the union will sort of give up and be okay with getting paid the minimum and keeping the minimum the same. By the time the this next an extension ends it'll be time to reopen the fall 2022 almost renegotiation so They've stalled for a very long time. In the future, it, it, it's going to be decided by how willing the graduate assistants are to keep going with the renegotiations.
0: That was producer Ariana Aspadu speaking with WUFT's Gregorio Ruiz-Perez on UF graduate assistants fight for better wages. You're listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. Stay with us.
1: Explore the history and culture of our state as the Florida Historical Society presents Florida Frontiers. Discover how history impacts our lives today as we travel to historic sites from Pensacola to Key West and all points in between. From native people to Spanish settlers to cracker cowmen and beyond, we examine the diverse heritage of the Sunshine State. That's Florida Frontiers presented by the Florida Historical Society. Sunday morning at 7.30 on WUFT 89.1 90.1.
0: Welcome back to The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Melissa Fato. We've reached our last story for today about the connection between music and education. A state-funded elementary school music program has been extended in many Florida classrooms. Through the program, kindergartners through second graders receive music instruction for at least 30 minutes twice a week. The 10 participating schools are located in Alachua, Marion, and Miami-Dade County. Researchers at the University of Florida and Florida International University are collaborating to study the effects of this position in order to potentially implement it statewide. Producer Sarah Mandile spoke with WUFT reporter Abigail Hasbrook about
3: what the program looks like. In the recent legislative session, one of the bills that was passed by both the House and the Senate was the Early Childhood Music Education incentive pilot program, which is aimed to provide more music instruction to 10 select schools in three different counties, Alachua, Marion, and Miami-Dade. And the goal is to conduct research in these schools by looking at how the increased music instruction is helping kids with memory retention, not only in those music classes, but in other classes as well.
6: And in your article, you mentioned that this program has been extended a few times. What has that timeline looked like since it was launched in 2017?
3: Right, so the program initially began in the 2017-2018 school year, and it was authorized for a period of three years, initially set to expire on June 30th, 2020. And then that was then extended until the end of this school year of 2022. However, in the most recent legislative session, they extended it for another year and it will go until June 30th, 2023. And the initial extension was because the COVID-19 pandemic halted a lot of music instruction and classroom instruction in general. This most recent extension was just to collect further data And another component of that was the funding wasn't approved until the 2021-22 school year. So they wanted to be able to allocate more of those funds so that teachers could get more resources.
6: You were able to speak with some of the politicians who have been supporting this bill. What did they have to say about its benefits?
3: Yes. So I spoke with Keith Perry, the senator who sponsored the bill, and he is very passionate about this. He's been advocating a program of this nature for a long time. About a decade ago, he heard a presentation on music and its marriage with child development and how that can be very beneficial. And he wanted to conduct his own study through these schools so that it can eventually be implemented statewide in each school um, among those elementary school students. So I spoke with him and he said that while it was a bit arduous getting the funding, it was very much worth it. And he um, is very excited that the program has been able to succeed and continue for the duration that it has. Yeah.
6: And You mentioned that a part of this is that the results of the program are going to be studied. Could you elaborate on that a little
3: bit? Of course, so the research being conducted after the fact is going to be comprised of classroom observations and feedback from teachers and administrative staff like principals and that kind of thing. And they are going to, they being the researchers at the University of Florida College of Education and researchers at Florida International University are going to collaborate to look at the effects of this program through things like test scores, classroom performance, not only in the music classes, but in other classes like math, science, English, et cetera. And they're going to take that data and assess what the effects of the program were to then, as I said earlier, be able to potentially implement and fund this program statewide.
6: Another of your sources was a teacher in a classroom that has um, been a part of this program. What were some of her experiences
3: She has been very happy with the program. She's been able to use some of the funds that have been allocated to her to purchase things that she otherwise would not have been able to. For example, she was able to purchase more hand drums. Had she not had the funds to purchase those hand drums, not all of her students would have access to them during the classroom instruction period. She also was able to buy things like new curriculum textbooks. Some of the curriculum textbooks that she had were from the 1980s and they were outdated. So with the funds, she was able to then go ahead and order new updated curriculum and had the program that existed in her school, which is Fort McCoy Elementary School, which is in Marion County, she would not have been able to purchase those things. So it has been really beneficial for her and other teachers like her across the counties to be able to buy these resources that they otherwise would not have the money for.
6: How did you find the story? What made you interested in reporting on it?
3: I found the story through the help of Brandon Myers, who is a co-instructor for Fresh State Florida. We were chatting over a Zoom one day about various things related to the class. And he asked me what's something I'm interested in, in terms of reporting. And one of the things I said was education. And we happened upon the bill that sponsors this music program. And at the time it was still being deliberated in the legislature. And we thought it would be good to investigate because not a lot of other news sources that seemed to pick up on it. And I thought it was fascinating from the get-go because My dad is an art teacher at an elementary school, and he has been for more than 20 years. And there have been times when it was sort of touch and go if arts and music was going to still be integrated in elementary schools. And so it's interesting to see that shift where some lawmakers here in Florida are really prioritizing and pushing for the continuance and actually increase of music and arts in elementary schools. And so that's what drew me to it. And that's why I wanted to pursue it.
6: What was the reporting process for this story like for you? And how did you find
3: your sources? Many, many emails and many, many phone calls. I reached out to teachers and principals at every single participating school. I believe I reached out to every music teacher and every principal and administrative staff at each of the participating schools in order to see which music teachers I could speak with. I wanted to speak with as many as I possibly could to see what their experiences were like. In terms of lawmakers, I knew that I wanted to talk to Senator Keith Perry right away because he was the one pioneering the bill, and so I was able to get in touch with him. And it was, as far as getting some other sources, I was also able to reach out to and talk to some of the public information officers that were very helpful in terms of not only giving me their perspective on the program, but also connecting me with other teachers at some of the participating schools as well.
0: That was producer Sarah Mandile speaking with WUFT reporter Abigail Hasbrook about the extension of a state-funded music program in some Florida schools. That's all for this episode. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Ariana Aspidu, Sarah Mandile, Melissa Fato, and Malia Lyndon. Our executive producer is Sky Lebron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Remember to follow us at WUFT News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest stories. I'm Melissa Fato. Thanks for listening.